Chapter Sixteen of the Holiday Case: A Tale by Burton E. Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Holiday Case: A Tale by Burton E. Stevenson. Chapter Sixteen: I Beard the Lion. Martigny was lying back in his berth, smoking a cigarette, and as I entered, he motioned me to a seat on the locker against the wall. It was most kind of you to come, he said with his old smile. "'It was only by accident I learned you were on board,' I explained, as I sat down. "'You're getting better?' "'I believe so, though this physician is, what you call, an alarmist. Most of them are, indeed. The more desperate the illness, the more renowned the cure. Is it not so? He has even forbidden me cigarettes, but I prefer to die than to do without them. Will you not have one?' and he motioned to the pile that lay beside him. "'Thank you,' I said, selected one, and lighted it. "'Your cigarettes are not to be resisted. But if you are so ill, why did you attempt the voyage? Was it not imprudent?' "'A sudden call of business,' he explained airily. "'Unexpected, but what you call imperative. Besides, this bed is the same as any other. You see, I have a week of rest.' the doctor it was he who mentioned your name to me it was not on the sailing list no he was looking at me sharply i came on board at the last moment the need was very sudden as i have said i had not time to engage a stateroom that explains it well the doctor told me that you were bedfast yes since the voyage began i have not left it i shall not arise until we reach havre to-morrow I watched him as he went through the familiar motion of lighting a second cigarette from the first one. In the half-light of the cabin I had not at first perceived how ill he looked. Now I saw the dark patches under the eyes, the livid and flabby face, the shaking hand, and for the first time, with a little shock, I realized how near he had been to death. "'But you, Mr. Lester,' he was saying, "'how does it occur that you also are going to France?' I did not know you contemplated. No, I answered calmly, for I had seen that the question was inevitable, and I even welcomed it, since it gave me opportunity to get my guns to going. No, the last time I saw you I didn't contemplate it, but a good deal has happened since then. Would you care to hear? Are you strong enough to talk? Oh, how I relished tantalizing him! I should like very exceedingly to hear, he assured me and shifted his position a little, so that his face was in the shadow. "'Beams of light through the shutter make my eyes to hurt,' he added. So he mistrusted himself. So he was not finding the part an easy one either. The thought gave me new courage, new audacity. "'You may remember,' I began, "'that I told you once that if I ever went to work on the holiday case, I'd try first to find the murderess.' I succeeded in doing it the very first day. "'Ah!' he breathed. "'And after the police had failed. That was indeed remarkable. How did you accomplish it?' "'By the merest chance, by great good fortune. I was making a search of the French Quarter, house by house, when, on Houston Street, I came to a restaurant, the Café Jordan. A bottle of Superior set Jordan's tongue to wagging. I pretended I wanted a room. He dropped a word, the merest hint, and in the end I got the whole story. 
It seems there was not only one woman, there were two. Yes. Yes, and a man whose name was Betuny or Betune or something like that. But I didn't pay much attention to him. He doesn't figure in the case. He didn't even go away with the women. The very day I set out on my search, he was picked up on the street somewhere, suffering with apoplexy and taken to a hospital, so nearly dead that it was a question whether he would recover. So he's out of it. The Jordains told me that the women had sailed for France. "'You will pardon me,' said my hearer, "'but in what way did you make sure that they were the women you desired?' "'By the younger one's resemblance to Miss Holliday,' I answered, lying with a glibness which surprised myself. The Jordains maintained that a photograph of Miss Holliday was really one of their lodger. I heard him draw a deep breath, but he kept his face under admirable control. "'Ah, yes,' he said. "'That was exceedingly clever. "'I should never have thought of that. "'That is worthy of Monsieur Lecoq. "'And so you followed them to France. "'But surely you have some more, "'what you call, definite address than that, Mr. Lester.' "'I could feel his eyes burning out from the shadows. "'I was thankful for the cigarette. "'It helped me to preserve an indifferent countenance. "'No,' I said. It seems rather wild goose chase, doesn't it? But you could advise me, Mr. Martigny. Where would it be best for me to search for them? He did not answer for a moment, and I took advantage of the opportunity to select a second cigarette and light it. I dared not remain unoccupied. I dared not meet his eyes. I trembled to see that my hand was not wholly steady. That, he began slowly at last, "'Seems to me a most, um, difficult affair, Mr. Lester, "'to search for three people through all France. "'There seems little hope of success. "'Yet I should think it most likely that they have gone to Paris.' "'I nodded. "'That was my own theory,' I agreed. "'But to find them in Paris seems also impossible.' "'Not if one uses the police,' he said. "'It could most probably be soon achieved.' if you requested the police to assist you. But, my dear sir, I protested, I can't use the police. Miss Holliday at least has committed no crime. She has simply chosen to go away without informing us. You will permit me to say, then, Mr. Lester, he observed, with just a touch of irony, that I failed to comprehend your anxiety concerning her. I felt that I had made a misstep, that I had need to go carefully. "'It is not quite so simple as that,' I explained. "'The last time we saw Miss Holliday, she told us that she was ill, "'and intended to go to her country home for a rest. "'Instead of going there, she sailed for France, without informing anyone, "'indeed doing everything she could to escape detection. "'That conduct seems so eccentric that we feel in duty bound to investigate it. "'Besides, two days before she left, she received from us a hundred thousand dollars in cash.' I saw him move uneasily on his bed. After all, this advantage of mine was no small one. No wonder he grew restless under this revelation of secrets which were not secrets. "'Ah,' he said softly, and again, "'Ah, yes, that seems peculiar. Yet perhaps if you had waited for a letter—' "'Suppose we had waited and there had been no letter.' Suppose, in consequence of waiting, we should be too late. 
too late too late for what mr lester what is it you fear for her i don't know i answered but something something at least we could not assume the responsibility of delay no he agreed perhaps not you are doubtless quite right to investigate i wish you success i wish that i myself might aid you there is so much of interest in the case to me but i fear that to be impossible i must rest i who have so many affairs calling me so little desire to rest is not the fate ironical and he breathed a sigh which was doubtless genuine enough will you go to paris i asked oh no not at once at havre i shall meet my agent and transact my affairs with him then i shall seek some place of quiet along the coast yes i said to myself with leaping heart etre tard but i dared not speak the word i shall write to you he added when i have settled where do you stay at paris we haven't decided yet i said we he repeated didn't i tell you mr royce our junior partner is with me he's had a breakdown in health too and needed a rest it is no matter where you stay he said i shall write to you at the poste restante i should like both you and your friend to be my guests before you return to amerique there was a courtesy a cordiality in his tone which almost disarmed me such a finished scoundrel it seemed a shame that i couldn't be friends with him for i enjoyed him so thoroughly we shall be glad to accept i answered knowing in my heart that the invitation would never be made you're very kind he waved his hand deprecatingly then let it fall upon the bed with a gesture of weariness i recognized the sign of dismissal i was ready to go i had accomplished all i could hope to accomplish if i had not already disarmed his suspicions i could never do so i am tiring you i said starting up how thoughtless of me no he protested no but his voice was almost inaudible i will go i said you must pardon me i hope you will soon be better and i closed the door behind me with his murmured thanks in my ears it was not till after dinner that i found opportunity to relate to miss kemble the details of my talk with martigny she listened quietly until i had finished then she looked at me smilingly why did you change your mind she asked the adventure tempted me those are your own words i thought perhaps i might be able to throw martigny off the track and do you think you succeeded i don't know i answered doubtfully he may have seen clear through me oh i don't believe him superhuman i believe you succeeded we shall know to-morrow i suggested yes and you must keep up the deception till the last moment remember he will be watching you he mustn't see you take the train for etretat i'll do my best i said and don't make mountains out of molehills you see you've been distrusting yourself needlessly one mustn't be too timid do you think i'm too timid i demanded eager instantly to prove the contrary but she saw the light in my eyes i suppose for she drew away almost imperceptibly only in some things she retorted and silenced me the evening passed and the last day came we sighted land soon after breakfast the high white cliffs of cape la hague vague at first but slowly lifting as we ploughed on into the bay 
with the crowded roofs of Havre far ahead. I was standing at the rail beside Miss Kemble, filled with the thought of our imminent good-bye, when she turned to me suddenly. "'Don't forget Martigny,' she cautioned. "'Wouldn't you better see him again?' "'I thought I'd wait till we landed,' I said. "'Then I can help him off the boat and see him well away from the station. He's too ill to be very lively on his feet. We shouldn't have any trouble dodging him.' "'Yes, and be careful. He mustn't suspect Etretat.' "'But look at that clump of houses yonder. Aren't they picturesque?' "'They were picturesque, with their high red roofs and yellow gables and striped awnings. Yet I didn't care to look at them. I was glad to perceive what a complicated business it was, getting our boat to the quay, for I was jealous of every minute. But it was finally accomplished in the explosive French manner, and after a further short delay the gangplank was run out.' "'And now,' said my companion, holding out her hand, "'we must say good-bye.' "'Indeed not,' I protested. "'See, there go your mother and Royce. "'They're evidently expecting us to follow. "'We'll have to help you with your baggage.' "'Our baggage goes through to Paris. "'We make our declarations there.' "'At least I must take you to the train.' "'You are risking everything,' she cried. "'We can say good-bye here as well as on the platform.' "'I don't think so,' I said. "'I have already said good-bye to all my other friends. "'But I refused to be treated just like all the others, "'and I started with her down the gangplank. "'She looked at me from the corner of her eyes, "'her lips trembling between indignation and amusement. "'Do you know,' she said deliberately, "'I am beginning to fear that you are obstinate, "'and I abhor obstinate people.' "'I am not at all obstinate,' I objected. I'm simply contending for my rights. Your rights? My right to be with you as long as I can, for one. Are there others? Many others. Shall I enumerate them? No, she said, we haven't time. Here is mother. They were to take the company's special train to Paris, which was waiting on the wharf two hundred feet away, and we slowly pushed our way toward it. In the clamor and hurry and confusion wholly Latin, there was no chance for intelligent converse. The place was swarming with people, each of them, as it seemed to me, on the verge of hysteria. Someone somewhere was shouting en voiture in a stentorian voice. Suddenly we found our way blocked by a uniformed official who demanded to see our tickets. "'You can't come any farther, I'm afraid,' said Mrs. Kemble, turning to us. "'We'll have to say good-bye,' and she held out her hand. "'But we'll soon see you both again in Paris.' "'You have the address?' "'Oh, yes,' I assured her. I felt that there was no danger of my ever forgetting it. "'Very well, then. We shall look for you,' and she shook hands with both of us. For an instant I felt another little hand in mine. A pair of blue eyes smiled up at me in a way. "'Good-bye, Mr. Lester,' said a voice. "'I shall be all impatience till we meet again.' "'So shall I,' and I brightened. "'That was nice of you, Miss Campbell.' "'Oh, I shall be anxious to hear how you succeeded,' she retorted. "'You will bring Miss Holiday to us?' "'If we find her, yes.' "'Then again, good-bye.' She waved her hand, smiling, and was lost in the crowd. "'Come on, Lester,' said Mr. Royce's voice. "'There's no use standing staring here. We've got our own journey to look after.' And he started back along the platform. Then, suddenly, I remembered Martigny. "'I'll be back in a minute,' I called, and ran up the gangplank. 
has Monsieur Martigny left the ship yet? I inquired of the first steward I met. Martigny, he repeated. Martigny, let me see. The sick gentleman in 375, I prompted. Oh, yes, he said. I do not know, monsieur. Well, no matter, I'll find out myself. I mounted to the upper deck and knocked at the door of 375. There was no response. After a moment I tried the door, but it was locked. The window, however, was partly open, and shading my eyes with my hands, I peered inside. The stateroom was empty. A kind of panic seized me as I turned away. Had he indeed seen through my artifice? In attempting to blind him, had I merely uncovered my own plan? Or, and my cheeks burned at the thought, was he so well entrenched that he had no fear of me? Were his plans so well laid that it mattered not to him whither I went or what I did? After all, I had no assurance of success at Etretat, no proof that the fugitives had gone there, no reasonable grounds to believe that we should find them. Perhaps indeed Paris would be a better place to look for them. Perhaps Martigny's advice had really been well meant. I passed a moment of heart-rending uncertainty. I saw quite clearly what a little, little chance of success we had but I shook the feeling off, sought the lower deck, and inquired again for Martigny. At last the ship's doctor told me that he had seen the sick man safely to a carriage, and had heard him order the driver to proceed to the Hotel Continental. "'And frankly, Mr. Lester,' added the doctor, "'I am glad to be so well rid of him. It is most fortunate that he did not die on the voyage. In my opinion he is very near the end.' I turned away with a lighter heart. From a dying man there could not be much to fear. So I hunted up Mr. Royce, and found him finally endeavouring to extract some information from a supercilious official in a gold-laced uniform. It was, it seemed, a somewhat complicated proceeding to get to Etretat. In half an hour a train would leave for Beuzeville, where we must transfer to another line to Les Ifs. There a second transfer would be necessary before we could reach our destination. How long would it take? Our informant shrugged his shoulders with fine nonchalance. It was impossible to say. There had been a heavy storm two days before, which had blown down wires and damaged the little spur of track between Les Ifs and the sea. Trains were doubtless running again over the branch, but we could not probably reach Etretat before morning. Amid this jumble of uncertainties, one definite fact remained. A train was to leave in half an hour, which we must take. So we hurried back to the boat, made our declaration, had our boxes examined perfunctorily and passed, bought our tickets, saw our baggage transferred, tipped a dozen people, more or less, and finally were shut into a compartment two minutes before the hour. Then, in that first moment of inactivity, the fear of Martigny came back upon me. Had he really gone to the hotel? Had he deemed us not worth watching? Or had he watched? Was he on the train with us? Was he able to follow? The more I thought of him, the more I doubted my ability to deceive him. I looked out cautiously from the window, up and down the platform, but saw no sign of him, and in a moment more we rattled slowly away over the switches. I sank back into my seat with a sigh of relief. Perhaps I had really blinded him. An hour's run brought us to Beuzeville, where we were dumped out, together with our luggage, in a little frame station. An official informed us that we must wait there three hours for the train for Les Ifs. Beyond that, he could not say. 
we might possibly reach Etretat next day. How far is Les Ifs from here? inquired my companion. About twelve kilometres, sir. And from there to Etretat? Is twenty kilometres more, sir. Thirty-two kilometres altogether, said Mr. Royce. That's about twenty miles. Why can't we drive, Lester? We ought to cover it easily in three hours, four at the most. Certainly it seemed better than waiting on the uncertain railway, and we set at once about the work of finding a vehicle. I could be of little use, since English was an unknown tongue at Beuzeville, and even Mr. Royce's French was sorely taxed, but we succeeded at last in securing a horse and light trap, together with a driver who claimed to know the road. All this had taken time, and the sun was setting when we finally drove away northward. The road was smooth and level. They managed their road-making better in France, and we bowled along at a good rate past cultivated fields with little dwellings like doll-houses dotted here and there. Occasionally we passed a man or woman trudging along the road, but as the darkness deepened it became more and more deserted. In an hour and a half from Beuzeville we reached Les Ifs, and here we stopped for a light supper. We had cause to congratulate ourselves that we had secured a vehicle at Beuzeville, for we learned that no train would start for Etretat until morning. The damage wrought by the storm of two days before had not yet been repaired. The wires were still down, and we were warned that the road was badly washed in places. Luckily for us the moon soon arose, so that we got forward without much difficulty, though slowly, and an hour before midnight we pulled up triumphantly before the Hôtel Blanquet, the principal inn of Etretat. We lost no time in getting to bed, for we wished to be up betimes in the morning. And I fell asleep with the comforting belief that we had at last eluded M. Martigny. End of chapter 16